if you would go to God and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that you are always with us. We're thankful that you're everywhere we look, everywhere we turn. We know that we have your spirit. We know that where two or more are gathered in your name, you're there, Jesus. And so today, as we dive into your word, as we start this new series, I just ask that you would help us to always remember that you're here, you're with us. Around every corner, under every stone, Jesus, you are the center of everything. I pray that you would soften our hearts to your word, that you would help us to take in your word, to understand it. I pray that you would be with me in my speech and make my words clear and concise so that those who would hear it would be able to know and understand and be able to discern your word, Lord. We pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. And the church said, Amen. Amen. All right. So we are starting a new series. We had a little bit of a break in our our little three-sermon series uh, the last few weeks. And today, we're going to be starting a new series that I'm calling Fingerprints. So I want to give you an an idea. We're kind of going to be doing two series together that's kind of be under one big umbrella. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Starting it around Christmas time, we're going to start in the book of Exodus. And we're going to be reading through the book of Exodus all the way until Easter. And starting today and ending at Christmas, we are going to be looking at a few places in the book of Genesis. And so, not counting the weeks where I'm gone at uh, drill with my unit down in Aurora, not counting those weeks between uh, now and Easter, that's 26 weeks we will be spending in the Old Testament. And I don't want that to scare you. I don't want you to realize 20, that's half a year in the Old Testament. Um, I want to encourage you in that. See, what I've noticed in the church is we typically spend the vast majority of our time reading this little section of the Bible, and we leave out this big chunk here, right? And that makes sense when you think about it, because we are Christians, we are followers of Christ, and so it makes sense that we spend the majority of our time in the parts of the Bible that actually mention Jesus by name. But there's a couple of reasons that I want to spend the next half of a year in the Old Testament. And the first is this. I'd love if you would turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, please. 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul is speaking to Timothy and he says, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Notice something about that verse. Two things I want you to notice about that verse. First is that word, God breathed. Did you know that that word, theopneustos, is in the Greek? Did you know that Paul invented that word? We have no record of that word ever being used in any literature outside of either when Paul wrote it or other people later on who were quoting Paul in their writings. It's never been used before. And so the word is, it's they take the word God, and you took the word breath or breathed and crammed them together. And we get this word God breathed. And so because of that, we kind of puzzle ourselves on what exactly that word means, God breathed. 
Um, the first and probably the most accurate description is the idea that all of Scripture is breathed out by God. This is the Word of God, breathed out by the Holy Spirit. And we can understand that, but you can also understand that word to mean breath from God. See, all of Scripture is both the breath of God, it is true, and we know it's true because it's breathed out by God, but it's also a breath that we receive from God. And you can't live without air. You cannot live without receiving breath. And so if you want to know, if you want me to tell you which of those two definitions of God breathed is the correct one, yes, both of them, I think. I think that they're both true. And so knowing that all of Scripture is the source of life from God, I want to turn to the other word in that verse that's very important, and that's the word all, which in, in the Greek uh, actually means all. Um, remember, when Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, when he said Scripture, when he said all of Scripture, this part hadn't been finished yet. And so when Paul says to Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, he was talking about this first part right here. See, the miraculous thing about the Bible is that this book did not miraculously come down from the clouds on a, on a ray of sunshine. That's not how the Bible was put together. See, we have this book that was written over the course of about 1,500 years in three different languages by 40 different human authors. And by human authors, I mean the actual people who received revelation from God who took the actual pen and put it to paper. Forty different people by doctors and shepherds and kings and fishermen and judges and soldier, and all of it points to one central idea. But there's another reason I want to spend time in all of the Scripture, in all of the Old Testament, or at least a good portion of the Old Testament, I'd love if you would turn to Luke 24 with me, please. Look at this. I'm making the case of why we should read our Bibles. I don't know why I'm doing that. Luke 24. This is the story of Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Starting in verse 13, it says, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know these things that have happened in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in the word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. 
And what's more, it's the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen visions of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. And listen to what Jesus replies to them. He says, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And check this out in verse 27. He says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. See, when the first Christians read what we now call the Old Testament, they saw Jesus everywhere. On every page, in every story, they would say, I know this story is about Moses, but I sure see Jesus in that story. Think about in John 1.45. I'll just read it. You don't have to turn there. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Well, Moses never mentions Jesus by name, does it? In fact, the first five books of the Bible never even use the word Messiah, but they read it and they saw Jesus there. Think about the book of Matthew. You can't turn two pages in the book of Matthew without hearing the words, this was done to fulfill what was written. Da, 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 and then he'll name a scripture. This was done to fulfill the prophecy. This was done to fulfill the law. And so every time you turn around, Jesus says or does something that is fulfilling what was written in the Old Testament. And yet sometimes, when we as Christians today turn back to our Old Testament and we read it, we put this block in our minds. And we spend all of our time trying to read about David and Moses and the story and what it was about. And that's good. We need to do that because that's an important way to read the scriptures. But we forget to read the Bible the way the early church read the Bible. And that was through the lens of Jesus. And so what we're going to be doing for the next 26 weeks is we are going to be looking for the fingerprints of Jesus in all of these stories in the Old Testament. We're going to be looking at how these stories point us to Jesus. And for some of you, this might be a new way of reading the Scriptures. And I'll be upfront with you, for some of you this might even make you a little uncomfortable as a way of reading the scriptures. You might hear me make a connection to Jesus and say to yourself, no, I don't get it. I don't, I don't see the link there. I want to encourage you that's okay. If you hear me say something and you're like, I'm pretty sure that was just about Moses. I don't think that specific one has anything to do with Jesus. That's okay. My goal here is not to convince you on every little verse and every little story that there's Jesus there. My goal here is just simply to encourage you to read the Old Testament in a way in which you're looking for Jesus on every page. Might be the other way. We might read a passage of scripture and you see the fingerprints of Jesus and I skip right over it because I missed it. And so what I want us to do as we read this together, I want you to come forward and find me and say, hey, after that 
that part you read, I totally saw Jesus in that verse and you didn't even mention it. Encourage me. Give me enlightenment and help me see Jesus in those scriptures too because I don't catch everything either. I want to train ourselves to read the Old Testament in a spiritual sense to look for Jesus. I want to train ourselves to read the Old Testament the same way Peter did. The same way Paul did. And I give you permission to to shake your head as we go along and say, no, that one doesn't make sense to me. That's okay. Because at the end of the day, the safest way to read Scripture is the literal, like, this is what it says, and this is what happens, and this is the story. That's, that's kind of the safest way to understand Scripture. Um, but my hope is that through some practice, through some time, you'll be able to see uh, that Jesus was there and his fingerprints are on every page. And so with that, I would love if you would turn to page 1, verse 1 of your Bible. And we'll see if we can... Find the fingerprints of Jesus. Very first page, very first sentence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. And there was evening and morning the first day. Now normally, I would start here and I would explain where I see Jesus in this, but I want to save this one till the end. And you'll see why in a minute. So I want you to just take that section, I want you to just Put a sticky note and put it in the back of your mind. We're going to come back to it. Let's move on. Verse 6. And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault and the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. And there was evening and morning the second day. Your Bible might say firmament. Anybody heard that word firmament? I always wondered, what what, what is a firmament? So it's this big Bible word, and I don't understand what it means. A vault. What the word means, it's a a dome. That's what it means. It means a dome. Um, And we know, we understand that there's not an actual big glass dome above us. We've sent rocket ships up there. We've sent airplanes. Like we, We kind of understand that. I don't know what it was like on the first day, maybe on the first or the second day, excuse me. Maybe there was an actual dome. But for us today, we're like, oh, there's not really a dome there. But I want you to think about this for a minute and get an idea of what kind of picture this paints for us about creation. We have this idea that there is a distinct separation from things that are earthly and things that are heavenly. And there's a clear line that separates them. I think about uh, what Paul says in Colossians 3. He says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not earthly things. I don't want to get too theological here, 
I want to ask you this question. Does heaven have a physical location? Up? We, we, we think about it up, right? But can we get on an airplane and fly there? We can't. We know that. These are the things that maybe when we're kids in Sunday school, we, we think about heaven being in the clouds and you see the pictures of the angels and the harps and we think about up, but there's not really a physical, actual place that you can fly to in a rocket ship, right? We understand that there's this spiritual level and we exist in this earthly realm and we can't really fathom it. We can't really understand how it works because we're stuck in these earthly bodies. That's why Paul tells us to set your mind on things above. Set your mind on spiritual things because we have to make metaphors. We have to make ways of thinking about it. That's why we always think, you know, you see the pictures on the clouds with the harps. And, but, and, and Jesus does this in his parables too, right? How many times in the gospel does it say, and the kingdom of heaven is like, da 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 a mustard seed. A man who was planting a farm. The kingdom of heaven is like, and then he uses an earthly example for us to understand. And so, when we think about this illustration we have of the kingdom of heaven, we think about this vault that separates us. Now, God's giving us this illustration. Think about the way a dome works for a minute. Like, Imagine if you could put an actual glass dome above the city of Alliance. And think about what the relationship between those who are in the vault, in the dome, and those who are outside or above the dome is. Like, are you picturing it? From inside the dome, it is physically impossible to reach the top. Think about the way a dome works, because it, a dome stands in front of you and then arches like this. You cannot climb, even if you had little suction cups, because eventually gravity pulls you down. But from outside the dome, it is more than possible, it is very easy to access inside the dome. Does that kind of make sense? You can picture this in your head. And so this picture we get, we get this vision, this idea that the earthly things and the heavenly things are separated in such a way that the only way the two can come together is if from outside the vault, God comes down to us, not the other way around. And that's exactly what we see in the Genesis account, right? We hear descriptions of God walking with Adam and Eve in the garden. Not the other way around. And when Adam and Eve were expelled from paradise, they were separated from God, there's no possible way for them to reconcile, for us to reconcile us, ourselves with God by us meeting Him. The only way is if He comes down to us. Are you seeing the fingerprints yet? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. See, when we're separated from God by our sins, it's not us doing anything to reach Him. He comes down to us. He comes on our level. And then, and only then, can we be reconciled, can we be connected again. It's only through Jesus that that separation can be overcome. 
We'll pick up in verse 9 here in Genesis. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land, and he gathered the waters, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seeds in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and morning the third day. So the very next thing God does after he creates things, after he brings light to the world, after he creates separation, after he puts things in order, is he gathers the waters together. That's an, that's an odd next step. I mean, you would have thought maybe something else would have come first, but God chose to gather the waters together in one place, and it's only after the waters have been gathered together in one place can the land produce vegetation that bears fruit. Didn't we just talk about last week how the only way we can produce fruit in our lives is through the power of the Holy Spirit? The power of the Holy Spirit that we receive upon baptism, upon the waters gathered in one place, you have to have one before you can have the other. Isn't that interesting? I see this picture here. One comes first, then the land can bear fruit. Once we've received the Spirit, once we've been immersed into Christ, then we can bear fruit. And then in verse 14, it says, And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark the sacred times and the days and years. And let them be lights in the and let there be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and morning the fourth day. Notice where God puts the lights. Puts them in the vault, in the unreachable place. The light does not come from us. The light comes from above. Now, obviously, we know on the physical level, we're talking about the sun and the moon. But remember, we're looking for the fingerprints of Jesus here. What does it mean that God put the lights in the unreachable place? Well, think about what Jesus says in John 8. John 8, verse 12, Jesus spoke to the people and he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See, in the actual literal creation story, what God did was he created the sun and the moon, and we understand that. But when we see the fingerprints of Jesus, we know that Jesus 
is the light. And notice how there's light at day and there's light at night. Jesus is our light no matter where we are, no matter what we do. Jesus is the light in our life. And then in verse 20, God said, Let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing which the water every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move around the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. So before life can begin, before God can bring actual moving, living, breathing life into the world, we need to have three things. God creates the light, He gathers the waters, and then he brings forth the trees, the vegetation. And we talked about the first two, right? The water and the light point us to Jesus. We see this imagery of baptism. We see this imagery of Jesus. So we kind of understand, for us today, life cannot exist without baptism, without being dead to our sins. Life cannot exist without the light of the world, which is Jesus. But then we got trees. How do trees, is it, maybe it's just trees, right? Have you ever wondered, I don't know what translation your Bible says, but in Galatians 3, uh, where Paul says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, or yours might say pole, depending on, that's been a verse that kind of puzzles me. Because Paul is quoting Deuteronomy here, and he's obviously talking about Jesus and the cross, but then he says, the scriptures say, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree and or pole, depending on what your Bible says. And you're like, well, Jesus didn't die on a tree or a pole, so I don't get it. Well, what's fascinating about the language that was spoken in Paul's day is that the word tree and the word pole and the word cross were all actually the same word. Kind of like uh, when we say uh, when we say the word uh, ball, like bawling, like crying, and but it also is ball, like the thing you bounce. Like they were the same word, but they could be used to describe either a tree or a cross or a pole. And so when the early church read this account, when they read that God created the trees. God brought the cross. God brought the pole. That's what they would have thought when they read that in the original language. They would have seen that. Oh, here's another good example. Kind of like the word bark. That's a better. That's what I was trying to think of. What does bark mean? Somebody shout it out. What is bark? 
a tree or a dog, right? We, we have the same word, and you can kind of have this play on words. I love in that the kids' movie Pocahontas where the, 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 there's the willow tree, and she says, my bark is worse than my bite. And it's funny because she's a tree, but then she's talking about the bark like a dog. That's what we kind of get. And so when we read Genesis and we're looking for the fingerprints of Jesus, we should really notice the fact that before life can begin, you need immersion, you need the light of the world, and you need the cross. In other words, to sum it up, you cannot have life without Jesus. That's the fingerprints. That's the kind of stuff that we, when we're looking for Jesus on every page, we see that. And we say, this reminds me a lot of all of this over here. This points to Jesus. This makes me think of Jesus. And then we get to the pinnacle moment in which God makes us. Pick back up in verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild creatures, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, and they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and the birds of the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was morning, excuse me, and there was evening and morning the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So we get creation, we get God bringing the world out of nothingness, and we finally get to the point where we come in. And there were a few words in there that I noticed. The word rule over kind of came up a lot. I give you dominion, your Bible might say. God created us originally to be ambassadors between him and his creation. God created us to be kings and queens to rule over his creation. And we kind of failed that mission, didn't we? We kind of messed that one up, but that was our original intention. And because we were meant to be ambassadors between creation and the Father, and we messed it up, he sent his son to do what we failed to do in the first place. 
And then on the seventh day, God rested from all the work that he had done. I want you to think about, picture a calendar in your head or you can pull one up on your phone. Think about how the days of the week work for a minute. Something we don't actually take time to think about. The seventh day in our calendars and the Jewish calendars is, say it louder for those in the back, Saturday. Right, that's the end. That's why on our calendars it's, it's at the end. And the first day is Sunday. Yeah, and so there's a reason I wanted to skip and come back to this first bit. And it has to do with the way days work. So, so think about this. On day six, that's Friday, if we're keeping track here, on Friday, God creates mankind. And on day seven, that's Saturday, God rests from the work he does. He institutes the Sabbath. And then the very next day is Sunday. So day one, God creates all of the universe when you think about how a week works. And the reason I wanted to think about things that way is I want you to think about a minute Jesus' final week during his earthly ministry. After he had ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey, after he had had the Last Supper with his disciples, after he was arrested in Rome, and I want you to think about that week and compare it to God's first week, the Father's first week in creation, and line those up and see what we can make of that. See, because in creation, God makes mankind in his own image for a purpose. On Friday, he makes mankind so that we may be rulers over the earth, that we may be kings and queens, that we may be ambassadors of all of God's creation. See, God created Adam, and he intended him to be king of the earth. And during Jesus' last Friday, during his earthly ministry, the ones who were the descendants of Adam, the ones who were the descendants of a long line of sin, the kings and the rulers and the authorities, took an innocent man, and they nailed his hands and feet to a cross. They stripped him of his clothes, they mocked him, they spit on him, and they left him to die an excruciating and humiliating death. Think about how far we fell from Adam to that point. I want you to read uh, Matthew chapter 27 with me. I'm going to start in verse 28. It says, They stripped him, and they put a scarlet robe on him, and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand, and they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. And then a little later down in verse 37, we read, Above his head... They placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. See, we were supposed to be the kings and queens of the earth. 
Adam was supposed to be the king of the earth and rule over it. But instead, the descendants of Adam twisted a crown of thorns on his head. But then, what did our king do on Saturday? Because they actually declared him king, even though they were mocking. They put him in his rightful place and said, he is the king. And then on Saturday, after he'd been put up on that cross, as evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. This is in verse 57. Who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of it, in front of the entrance to the tomb, and went away. On the seventh day, Jesus rested within the earth. He was laid to rest. And we get that all the way back in Genesis. On the seventh day, God rested from all the work He had done. Just like Jesus was laid to rest after all the work He had done, paying for our sins. But then, think about Jesus' story. What happened on Sunday? So now, I want to go back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Think about how dark of a day. I keep bouncing back and forth, but we're back in Jesus' last week now. Think about how dark of a day Saturday would have been for those followers. Because they were certain that he was the one who was going to free them. And he was laid in the ground. Think about for a minute the worst day that you've ever experienced in your life. Maybe you felt afraid. Maybe you were angry. Maybe you felt like you were in a place where you had no hope left at all. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. John 1 says, in Jesus, in Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot, excuse me, has not overcome it. And so after Jesus was laid to rest in the tomb and he rose from the grave, after he rolled that stone away, he did so much more than just get up and push a rock out of the way. He brought light to the world. He brought new creation to the world. He once and for all defeated the death and darkness caused by Adam and Eve in the garden. And he brought forth life. He made us a new creation and prepared for us a new Paradise. In the beginning, on Sunday, on the first day, Jesus brought forth new life into the darkness of the world. And God saw that that light was good, and He separated the light from the darkness. So if you're at a point 
where you feel like there's nothing left but spiritual darkness, I need you to know that the Spirit of God is hovering over you, hovering over the surface of the deepest, darkest parts of your soul, just waiting to speak life into it. Just like He did on day one, let there be light. Just like He did when He walked out of that grave. He spoke life into the world. God can speak life into your life. He can speak light into you and say, let there be light. And then through the power of the Holy Spirit, He can separate the light from the darkness in you. And He's gathered together the waters. The waters of baptism. He's put them in one place and He's made a way for us to have that life. He's made a way for us to bear fruit. And He's given us a place where we can rest. We can have that rest in Christ. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I will give you a Sabbath. I will give you the rest that you need. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So if you feel like you need that rest, if you feel like you need that light in your life, right now we're getting ready to sing a song of invitation. This is an opportunity for someone to come forward and ask for that light, to ask for that rest, to ask for that forgiveness that's been weighing you down. And so if that's something you need in your life, Jesus has done it. He's already walked out of the tomb. He's just waiting. Will you go to God in prayer with me? Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You for all Your creation. We thank You... For the fact that you were able to create everything here that exists with your words, with a snap of your fingers, with just your voice. You made everything come into existence. And Father, we want to apologize. We know it doesn't make anything better, but we want to take a moment to say, we're sorry we messed it up. We're sorry that we took your perfect creation and we cast it into the darkness, but God, we're so thankful that you gave us a second chance, that you sent us your son, that you sent the light into the world. Because there's a vault that separates us, Lord. There's something over us. There's a way that we cannot get to you. Only you can come to us. So we thank you so much that you sent your son, that he took on flesh, that he dwelt among us, that he died in that tomb for us, that he gave us new life, Lord. So we just ask forgiveness. We ask that you would just help us to thank you because we can't thank you enough. I ask that as we go about our week, as we go out into the world, I ask that you would help us to see your son's fingerprints on everything because all of creation has the fingerprints of Jesus on it, Lord. So we just thank you that he's there with us. We thank you for your son. We thank you for everything that you do for us. And we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. And the church said, Amen. Now in a moment here, we're going to sing a song of invitation. 
This is actually one of my favorite songs, so I'm really excited to, to sing this one. We're going to sing, uh, you got your thing. <laughs> 